Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Mark Lanier examining some of the world's major religions to determine what in them is true. And so I take those religious systems and try to see where they've prepared, every heart's prepared to hear the gospel, see how they've been prepared and how they have some elements of truth, but then I put them to the test to show where they're missing truth, adhering to non-truth, and where the gospel is the answer to, to the shortcomings of their religious faith. Mark Lanier, next. As a trial attorney, Mark Lanier uses many tools, including probing questions to seek for truth. He questions some of the world's major religions in his new book, Religions on Trial. A lawyer examines Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and more. Mark, this book completes a trilogy of books. Tell us about the first two and how Religions on Trial fits in. Well, I started out with the the basic question that rose out of my dialogues with some of my my son's friends. My son was uh, getting uh, two graduate degrees from Oxford University, his master's and his DPhil in philosophy and logic. And so many of the friends over there were people who did not think that you could be a rational uh, person and an intelligent person and be a Christian. And so I thought, well, okay, I spend a living putting issues to trial. Uh, we, we've developed a court system in America that we have enough confidence in that will uh, put uh, people to, to death, will we'll take children from parents, will bankrupt corporations. Uh, it, it is the best mechanism we've got for, for finding truth in our, in our society. And so I thought I'll take those tools and I'll put it to the test. Uh, let's put Christianity to the test, the, the tenets and fundamentals of the Christian faith, and see whether or not uh, a rational jury might might believe it. And so that was book one. Book two was, okay, let's do the same thing with atheism and agnosticism. Let's put those to, to in a sense, the legal test to see whether or not in a court of law, uh, uh, I suspect uh, a jury might uh, uh, agree or disagree with those philosophical approaches to life. Mm-hmm. And so I did that. And, and then volume three to kind of finish it off was, well, let's look at the major religious systems of the world and measure them by a fair and appropriate criteria to see whether or not they are valid answers to the reality of existence. And so that's this third religions on trial. And you write that this is actually your favorite book? I think it, I think it may be. I think you know, I think some of that is uh, the first book came out seven years ago, and, and I've grown as a person, and I've grown in my understanding. But what I really liked about this book was I took a fundamental premise of Christianity, and, and, and I put it to test. The fundamental premise is the, the Christian believes, because the Bible teaches, that God is truth, and that God has put his truth into the world. So we have his truth as revealed in scripture, but we also have his truth as revealed in the world. And and anybody in the world who wants to try and understand the world, we are attracted to truth the way metal is to a magnet. And when we get that truth, we glom onto it and we hold it tight because it's it's in our heart and soul. It's 
It's it's a convicted truth. It's something of which we're confident. And so I expect that as a Christian, that I can look into almost any genuine belief system in the world, and I'll find elements of truth there. Now, I don't find the great truths that God has presented through the history and the Bible that we've got, um, but I will find elements of truth. And so it's it's understandable why you'll why you'll have some some earnest, wonderful people who practice Buddhism, for example, who have found something that they they know confidently to be true. The problem is there are other parts of Buddhism that are not true, and they're missing the truth of the Christian Messiah. Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so I take those religious systems and try to see where they've prepared, every heart's prepared to hear the gospel, see how they've been prepared and how they have some elements of truth. But then I put them to the test to show where they're missing truth, adhering to non-truth, and 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 where the gospel is the answer to, to the shortcomings of their religious faith. Well, it's very interesting. In the opening pages of your book, as you explain, uh, you examine seven different well-known religious systems in, in your book, but you say a complete examination of each one is unnecessary, and you illustrate that statement with an approach you take, it sounds like, normally in, in trial cases, but you uh, explain it in light of the very first jury trial dealing with the nation's opioid Epidemic. So one of the key things that any judge needs to do in a trial is they need to, to serve as a gatekeeper for evidence. I can find an expert witness who will say anything I want him to say if I pay him money. But those expert witnesses are not allowed to testify in a trial. The judge has criteria by which witnesses are allowed to testify. There have to be elements to keep junk science out of the courtroom, for mm. example. I mean, I can find someone to put on the stand who will tell me the earth is flat, but a judge isn't going to let that happen. Yeah. And so so you've got to meet certain criteria. And so I thought, well, let's apply that same approach to religious systems. Let's come up with criteria that will help us discern whether or not the religious system is one that is consistently valid and truthful, or whether or not there are some pretty big holes in it. Well, and I especially like, as you illustrate this particular trial, and they brought forth a an expert witness who, at least at first, seemed very credible, very convincing. You point out you don't need to discredit everything the witness says. In other words, you don't need to discredit every point of these religions, but just blow a big hole in some aspect of the credibility yeah, of the expert. Bill, Bill, this book's only a couple hundred pages long. Um, if I wanted to dissect Islam, for example, I could spend, uh, uh, I could easily write a 2,000-page treatise, yeah. 10 times as long, to dissect and explain uh, so many different things that are, are invalid with it. But instead, um, I, I approach this the way I do a trial in that, for example, in the opioid trial, uh, the judge said, you have this amount of time. That's all. You can use X number of hours. And when you're out of time, you're done. And so what I had to do is not take that witness that I could cross-examine brutally and, and bring to their knees, whimpering in tears mm -hmm. after 
five days of, of brutal questioning. Instead, I had about two and a half hours. Mm. And so what I had to do is not send in the entire military. I needed to send in a sniper and I needed to, to, to find the, 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 you know, give me one strategic hole in the bottom of the ship and I can sink the ship. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, with Islam, Islam is a is a history based faith. Uh, the, the Islam believes that every word, nay, every syllable in the Quran was given by God to Muhammad and is precisely correct historically as well as theologically. Now, if that is the case, then if we can find flaws in the history of Islam or in the, the history given in the Quran, um, then certainly the Quran does not measure up to what it is claimed to be, and the whole ship goes down once you have that hole. Well, my guest today on His People is Mr. Mark Lanier. He's a trial attorney and founder of the Lanier Law Firm. We're talking about his new book, Religions on Trial, A Lawyer Examines Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and more. And Mark, you divide the book, you divide these religions you look at into, I think you call them three buckets or three lists. And can you give us those three buckets and, and what religions are in each one of them? Sure. So in the first bucket, I deal with what are really kind of the Eastern religions or the mystical religions. And I only deal with two of those faiths. I deal with uh, uh, Hinduism and I deal with Buddhism. But those two faiths wind up being the expression of many other faiths in the mystical Eastern religious mindset. Mm. They're permutations, if you will, of that. Uh, uh, and so we cover a lot by covering that. Um, the second bucket are historical religions. And these are religions that are rooted in history. And those uh, chronologically are Judaism, first and foremost, followed by Islam. And then I, for a modern expression, I threw in Mormonism as well, though my LDS friends would tell me that that's not fair, that they are a Christian religion. Uh, uh, to me, they are a faith that that needs its own independent examination because they have their own independent theology and they have their own independent scriptures mm -hmm. apart from those that are deemed appropriate in Christian faith. So I deal with those three in the in the historical bucket. And then the final bucket are what I call modern religious expressions. And so these are people who are spiritual but not religious. And then the counterpart, people who are religious but not spiritual. Hmm. And so in the former bucket, we've got those like the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, hmm. those people who say, you know, I'm very spiritual. I might read my horoscope or, or I might have a good feeling about something and talk about how fate and destiny has led me somewhere. And yet they don't believe in a religion. And then the other are those who are Christians, but not so much because they've got a spiritual devotion to the Lord, it seems to be more about money, power, politics, mm. and, and, and things of that nature. And so I take them to task as well. And those are the, the, the three buckets with the, the religious affiliations I look at in each one. Okay, and I'd like to ask you about those in, in just a minute. But first, uh, in, in your book, Religions on Trial, you talk about six questions that you use to examine a belief system for truth. Obviously, we, we may not be able to uh, think through all of these when we're talking to somebody in one of these groups, but it's still helpful how you approached it. C can you talk about 
some or all of those those questions? Absolutely. The first question in my mind is whether or not the view is objectively consistent with the world. Um, we've got a world that's around us, and we know certain things about that world with a pretty high degree of confidence. And so if I've got a religious system that says the moon is made of cheese, uh, I think I can dismiss that out of hand because it's not consistent with the world. Uh, uh, now, there's more subtlety than that, obviously, yeah. but that's a, an extreme example. The second is whether or not the view is uh, consistent with who I am. Um for, for example, I know the struggles I have. And uh, if I've got a religious system that says that humanity can be perfect and, and without flaw, then I can tell you subjectively, that's not right, doesn't happen, yeah. can't happen, mm -hmm. try as I might. The third question I have is whether or not my view, the, my religious system's view of the world is consistent with the view that I have personally. So, for example, in an absurd example, one of our daughters was uh, um, a, a vegetarian because she thought that animals were not treated properly and she wanted uh, uh, to, to be outspoken on that issue. So for at least a year, she was a vegetarian. And then one morning we were at a breakfast buffet at a hotel and she went through the breakfast buffet and she came back with bacon on her plate. And I said to her, I said, Gracie, I said, animal rights. You're a vegetarian. And she looked at me with a, 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 a stunned look on her face and said, well, dad, not when there's <laughs> bacon, you know, and so yeah. we, we need it to be consistent. Uh, my fourth question or criteria is whether or not it's livable. I can I can have the best religious view in the world, but if it's not livable, I think that's a pretty good indication. It's not an accurate view of reality. Mm. And then my fifth one is whether or not it answers life's big questions. What are right and wrong and how did we get that established? Why are we here? Why do I have this feeling I'm meant for more in life? Mm -hmm. You know, what are these internal drives? Why is justice and fairness so important? Those types of things. And then the sixth and last question or criteria is whether or not it makes for good people and good society. And, and does this build up? Or does this tear down? And those are the criteria uh, that I used in this book. Okay. And uh, before, and our time's going very quickly, I want to ask you briefly about each religion. But uh, how does, and you talk about this, the Apostle Paul's visit to Mars Hill in Athens on uh, in the book of Acts uh, parallel what you're doing here with religions on trial? What Paul was able to do is go to Acts and, and use his great theological and philosophical training to engage those top flight thinkers of his day on their own ground. So he was able to find areas where they knew of truth and use what they already knew to be true to, in a sense, leverage into their thinking the gospel. So he knew that, that they knew that, that they didn't have it all figured out, that there had to be some God beyond what they had because their gods were not adequate to explain all of the issues of life and life and death and, and, and the human spirit. And so Paul was able to say, hey, I perceive you are a religious people. I see your tomb to the, to the unknown God. And, and or not to him alter to the unknown God. Let me tell you about him. This is the God who, and he quotes their poets and, and he, he takes their truth 
and then opens their horizons to see the greater truth of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, thank you for that. And I hope this isn't uh, moving too quickly and making things too concise, but I'm wondering if it, it would be possible to look briefly at each bucket and each religion in each bucket if, and to describe perhaps an area of truth that you see in each and an area that's inconsistent with reality as you perceive it as a Christian. Perhaps we could start with the mystical bucket and Buddhism and then Hinduism. Sure. In fact, I'll start with Hinduism because I think I ordered it that way in the book. Okay. Hinduism is, is almost not a religion. It's almost something uh, that, that's just named after the, the people on the other side of the Hindu or Indus River. And, and yet it's become a religious ideology. But you can be a Hindu and believe anything you want. You can believe in a million gods, a thousand gods, three gods, one god, no god. Uh, I know some people who claim to be Hindu atheists. I know some who claim to be Hindu Christians. Hmm. The idea being that all of these roads will get you to where you need to be, just experience this life and try to grow as a person and who you are. And I live in Houston, Texas. We have an interstate that goes through the middle of our town. It's called Interstate 10. Interstate 10, if you drive it west, will go to Los Angeles and stop at the Pacific Ocean. If you drive it east, it'll go to Florida and stop at the Atlantic Ocean. Mm. Now, if I want to go to Chicago, I can't take I-10. Mm-hmm. I-10 is only going to L.A. and points between and Florida and points between. It isn't going from Houston up to Chicago. I got no shot. It, it, it defies our basic understanding of the world to say all paths lead to the same end. The idea behind it is that there's a mountain peak and everybody can climb up the mountain peak from a different face mm. and reach the top of a mountain. That's the metaphor that's used. But I don't think that metaphor is accurate because if it is accurate, then you've got religions both claiming to be equally true that absolutely invalidate the other one. And so I think instead you've got to make a choice. You're either driving one direction or another direction. And, and so that, that's the approach that I use to look at the Hindu model. The Buddhist model is a little bit different. The, the, the Buddha uh, himself set out four noble truths to try and stop human suffering. And that was the goal of Buddhism, to stop human suffering. Mm-hmm. And the four noble truths basically say, disassociate yourself from pleasure, desire, or wanting anything. And then suffering does not come into your life because you're disassociated. So if someone slaps you, don't don't value uh, absence of pain. And if you don't value absence of pain when you're slapped, it doesn't hurt you Hmm. because you've lost nothing of value there. Um, I, I find that that may sound very noble in some mystical way, but I also find that it's very dangerous and not very workable. Because I live in an arena where I'll find uh, uh, the the trainer for the college Olympic team who's sexually abusing all of these women. And the answer to that is not telling the women, well, don't value your sexuality and and your your sexual uh, 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 privacy. Uh, If you don't value anything at all, then when you've been sexually violated, you won't suffer and will rid suffering. No, I live in a world... And, and I think everybody lives in a world where we recognize that there are certain things that are worth 
fighting that are evil and dangerous and 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 they do cause suffering and the suffering is unrighteous and not good and we should try and alleviate the suffering and so we fight against cancer and so we fight against hitler and nazi germany and we fight against uh, uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine. There are things that are worth fighting against. If we find someone's a mass murderer, we we bring them to justice and we stop what they're doing and we don't let them cause more suffering. We don't merely say, well, yes, but don't value life and then you won't suffer in death. Uh, that's not a valid answer for most people in this world when push comes to shove. And do you find elements, you say you find elements of truth in these religions as well? Sure, absolutely. So take, for example, suffering. Um, uh, Jesus taught to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything would be added to it. Um, he also taught to consider the lilies of the field, that, that they, they don't worry about what they're wearing. They don't, they don't sit at the, the weaving uh, loom. You know, they, they don't uh, sit at the spinning wheel, and yet they're beautiful. Um, we need to learn not to wrongly put our value in certain things. You know, if I value my money instead of the kingdom of God, then when I lose my money, I'm going to suffer. Mm. If I value instead the kingdom of God, then when I lose my money— it's within God's kingdom, and all is going to be fine. And so uh, th th there's a, a strong truth in the idea that we need to be careful where we assign value. But that does not translate into the absolute that the Buddhist faith takes it to. Well, the religious buckets or groups are mystical, historical, and modern religions and modern religious expressions. Are, our time is moving quickly. So moving to the historical bucket, well, just for starters, I know you go in a different order, but to, to land on Mormonism or the LDS, Latter-day Saint faith, you, you mentioned in your book you have numerous friends that are, uh, are uh, in that faith, in the Mormon faith, and I'm wondering if you could help us understand maybe what you see, areas of truth, but areas inconsistent with reality as you see it as a Christian? So Mormons um, are some of the finest ethical people in some ways. Um, they, they put a high emphasis on family. They put a high emphasis on obedience to God within the realm of how they understand God, certainly, but obedience. And those are wonderful traits. And I admire them for that and, and, and can even... Uh, seek to make sure that that I do as as well in my faith, um, but the pro and 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 I'll go another and, and a huge boon positive to Mormonism is they accept New Testament scriptures as authoritative, hmm. and so they can find within the New Testament things. That, but that's also where the problem is, because they supplement the New Testament scriptures with the Doctrines and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Mormon, with apostolic authority as it's handed down through the apostles that they have in the Mormon Church. And so they are able to, to put forward additional teachings that they claim have the authority of God and the authority of Scripture. And so here's my view of the world. It, it just makes sense to me. If all the Mormon scriptures do is supplement the Bible, then like, like a sermon might supplement the Bible when we hear a sermon in church, sure. then it will be consistent with the Bible. 
But if I find inconsistencies between Mormonism scriptures and the Bible, and I know that what I've got in the Bible is the is 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 the text as it would have been originally. We've been able to reconstruct it with with really almost absolute confidence. Mm-hmm. Then in that realm, I've got no choice but to recognize that the problems with Mormonism, both of us accept the validity of the Christian scriptures. And if Mormon scriptures contradict it, then that's a problem. Now, what I did in the book is not only point that out, but I went a step further and said, I can see historically how Mormonism developed. When you look at it historically, you can see how it came about. And then it's not surprising at all that it contradicts scripture in some major, important, foundational ways. And so that's my walk through Mormonism. And uh, finally, modern religious expressions, very fascinating, secular Christian, secular spiritualism. Uh, Some people might say, of course, uh, that that sounds like an oxymoron, putting the uh, secular and spiritualism, secular and Christianity together. Yeah, I can't understand how anyone can claim to be spiritual, but not have a view that there must be a God, there must be some what we would call religious faith behind that spiritualism that is true. And so uh, I pressed them on the idea of of why they could say what they're saying, because I just don't see it. But by the same token, I do see there are a lot of people out there who claim to be Christians. But if you measure them by how they live the life that Christ lived, how they love each other, how their compassion is for the lost, how their the, the the great goal in their life is to preach Christ and him crucified. And and it it doesn't seem to be there. They don't seem to walk by the spirit. They seem more interested in using their authority and their power and their prestige to either their own benefit or to the benefit of their agenda. And so I take them to task as well. I don't think that's true Christianity. Well, uh, Mr. Mark Lanier, my guest today on His People, uh, he's uh, the founder of the Lanier Law Firm. We're talking about his book, Religions on Trial, A Lawyer Examines Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and more. Our time has flown by. Mark, thank you so much. I'm just wondering if uh, you can give us something of a flavor for for, uh, your closing argument. At the end of the book, we, we haven't been able to look at all seven of these religions, but those that pick up the book can certainly do that, and it's very concise. But what about regarding a closing argument? My closing argument, if I had to do it succinctly, would be this. I appreciate anyone who's trying to figure out what life is about. I, I think that's what sets us apart from machines and animals, and and we all want to know at some level what life's about. Mm-hmm. And the thing about life is we should be able to answer some of those basic questions that give life meaning in a way that's consistent with the world, with ourselves, and with others around us. And I think if we try to do that, we will come to truth But I think the truth will be the biblical basics that there is an infinite, personal, and moral God who made humanity in his image. And humanity lost the perfection they had, and it affected our ability to commune, relate, and walk with God. But God, out of love and compassion and and his character, said that he would fix that problem. 
and he would restore to us a perfection that allows an eternal fellowship with him. And the way to do that had to be both a hand of God and a hand of man. So God became human in Jesus Christ, and he took all of the the punishment, the justice punishment on himself, and he paid the price for that. But being God, he was resurrected unto power. And those who put their faith and trust in him have a fellowship and a meaning and a purpose and an explanation for life that's unequaled by any other religious system and thoroughly explains why I am the way I am and what I'm doing here. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Mark Lanier, trial attorney and founder of the Lanier Law Firm and author of Religions on Trial. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Francis Sue on coming to Christ as a college student studying mathematics. Yeah, I mean, it was a way that that I began to ask some of the bigger questions in life. Like, what am I doing here? What's the the point of life, right? Even to the point of despairing of life. I never got to the point where I was about to take my own life, but I could certainly see um, a way in which I could be led led that way. Because suddenly everything that I based my, the sense of what life was, was about was being shaken. That's tomorrow at the same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening.